Hello everybody and welcome back to the Catch Cake podcast. Today we are on season four, episode seven, and we are continuing with our series of interviews. And we have a lovely lady here today, Frances Gallagher, who is an aquatic biologist. So think of things, all things sea, um, wetlands. Um, so you're going to learn loads today about all of the the blue side of the planet. Um, and I'm really excited myself because I love the ocean. Um, so without further ado, let's begin. And a quick thank you to the patrons um, for supporting the podcast. And if you'd like to support, you can go on to patreon.com slash catchkate. Um, so let's start today. Francis, would you like to introduce yourself and a little bit about your work? Thanks, Kate. Uh, well, as you say, I'm Francis Gallagher. I live in Roaches Point in East Cork and have done for quite a while at this stage. I've been interested in uh, all things marine and freshwater all my life. And um, I'm lucky enough to be able to work with freshwater creatures for ponds, wetlands and so forth. And also I've recently become very interested in seaweeds and have um, been working with the Ellen Hutchins Festival uh, group in uh, Bantry Bay on seaweeds and on their importance to Ireland and historically the uh, importance of seaweed in the Irish diet of coastal people. Um, I think Ireland has a fantastic resource um, both in the marine and in the freshwater environments that we have inherited comparatively unspoilt and uh, I feel we should appreciate them more, value them more highly uh, learn to love them and live with them and learn to be more careful with these extraordinary, valuable, fragile places and resources. Wow, thank you so much. Um, that's so interesting. Um, and could you give a little insight into, we'll say, a typical day if you were to go out foraging, like what? what could what would you be looking for do you have any tips or what are the most maybe delicious ones in ireland well we're very lucky in ireland of the um sort of 17 18 to twenty thousand, depending on who's counting seaweeds in the world ireland and the uk have at least 700 species which is quite a lot for a little island in the northeast atlantic we have um a very long coast. We could almost claim a couple of hundred metres each if we were divided to divide it up, which is, you know, a good sized beach for everybody. Um, and there are no really toxic seaweeds in the Northeast Atlantic, which is reassuring. If I'm giving a talk on foraging and I'm not clear about which little red seaweed is which, it won't do anyone any terrible damage to eat the wrong seaweed. You can't say that with mushrooms. I don't do mushrooms. <laughs> the um, the tip I would give is always be a little aware that the seashore is a volatile and active place. The tide comes in, the tide goes out, the rocks are slippery, the wind does blow. Um, tide and weather can change very quickly. Um, 
the best seaweeds to eat are ones which are still on a cellular level alive. So either very freshly uprooted seaweeds after a storm or seaweeds that are still growing. Don't pull them, cut them, and that way they can grow back more easily. If you cut uh, up to the top third of a frond of seaweed, it will grow back and um, don't pick too much from any particular area and only pick as much as you'll use. And that way there's enough to go around. Um, as I say, there are about 700 species. Most of those are small reds and a lot of them live offshore. But you still have a tremendous number. I'm still finding out, and I will be for decades, more things about the seaweeds of Ireland. Um, there are some very good books available. Prani Rattigan in the Connemara has done a couple of marvellous books of seaweed recipes and so forth. And there are good resources such as Algae Base online for identifying seaweeds. Um, I think Kate is going to attach some notes on further books and so forth that you can look at if you're interested. Uh, so you have to be situationally aware in the wild parts of Ireland at all times, wear the right footwear, check the weather forecast, check the tide. I prefer to gather from a more remote location and look around before you start gathering. Um, if there are any big pipes, any dense population nearby, um, maybe go somewhere else because you don't want to be eating anything that's contaminated by land runoff or sewage. Um, the same goes for intensive farming of any kind. Uh, even roads and streams can be not as clean as you might expect them to be. We're working on that. We're going to go on working on that and it will be um, something for a whole lifetime, I'd say. Um, blue flags and so forth are a valuable way of looking at the cleanliness of an area, of a beach, of a shore. Um, but generally, go for the rocks uh, with cliffs behind them because that way you aren't getting a stream draining in next to your, your area where you're picking seaweeds. Um, Seaweeds vary tremendously seasonally as well. There are some species which are best uh, in the winter and others which are only really available in the summer months. Um, I'm not going to go into 700 species worth of detail on that because we would be here all week, let alone all day. Um, is that enough for one? Yes, that's fab. That's great. Even for me, I'm taking it all and I can't wait to go up foraging. Um, so... I'm just intrigued to know why do you think we lost because it was a big thing ancestrally yes I remember seeing images of or stories about even Gailene the local fishing village how they would all go down there in the morning why do you think we lost it or why do you think yes we have lost a lot of our older ways of being Irish in Ireland uh, I think the great disconnect was the Irish famine it killed a lot of people, probably about one in eight of those who were living at the time. Um, it started an exodus from the island of Ireland that meant that the population kept dropping until the year I was born, 1964. Um, it made people lose faith in their traditional ways of doing things and it accelerated the loss of the Irish language and of a lot of cultural, um, culturally important uh, traditions, including the traditional diet, which 
when you think about it, potatoes were only brought in um, in Elizabethan times from the Americas. They're not a native Irish plant. We became increasingly dependent on potatoes as small holdings became smaller and the population became larger. Previous to that, we would have relied a lot more on oats and barley, on the beabon, which was basically dairy produce, um, on foraged wild and half wild things, on cabbages, um, members of the onion family and so on. We probably had a very healthy diet. Um, the potato itself is not an unhealthy food, but it did make people really, really dependent on the monoculture of the Connemara lumper potato. I think the fact that people in the coastal areas where the population was more concentrated than it is now um, had a lot more trace nutrients from their diet of seafood um, than they do now. It meant that they weren't getting deficiency diseases from living almost entirely on potatoes because they had this little supplement of even quite a small amount of seaweed, shellfish, um, Line-caught fish weren't that common because there wasn't that much fishing. And one of the first thing that, things that happened when the famine hit was people sold what they could sell to buy food. And what they could sell included their boats. Boats were laid up for most of the famine. People could still go down to the beach with a basket and gather what they could. There were reports of there being nothing growing between high and low tide for the you know, the famine went on almost 10 years for the, the last two or three years of the famine. Um, and I think that feeling that when you try and rely on it, you might not be able to find anything, broke people's um, confidence in the seashore as a place to gather food. And also made it uh, associated with hard times and with poverty. And that's a very difficult stigma to break. Wow, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, you kind of feel that sense of wanting to go back there. Because yes. there is such an abundance. There is, and a lot of that, I mean, I am talking about how fragile the seashore is. But a healthy shore um, has a lot of inaccessible little coves and things. So things can, I imagine there would have been a, a mark, if you like, of damage caused by desperate people trying to eke out a living for a couple of decades after the famine but things did regenerate have regenerated and in some areas particularly goil tocts in the west in ring in west Kerry, um continued to rely on the seashore uh, and i'm not really talking about line fishing or net fishing here i'm talking about foraging on the actual um uh, pedestrian accessible seashore uh, they would have gone on doing that, um, both for food and for fertilizer for crops, up until the beginning of the reliance on industrial uh, fertilizers, which we're seeing a few drawbacks of right now. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not only the actual shore, like um, where we can find food. There's also food up, like by the cliffs. Even, you know, would you be able to talk a bit about that? Well, I suppose one of the most important ones for particularly island people would have been bird's eggs. And I discourage that quite strongly yeah. <laughs> that people would have climbed cliffs looking for fulmer eggs, looking for the eggs of um, pretty much all nesting shorebirds as a, an early mm. part of the year. Um, the food of Easter, if you like, yeah. from then on. 
Um, Would they have eaten them raw or like fried them like an egg? I think they did pretty much everything yeah. in different places depending on. Yeah. But I, there are, there is talk, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is talk of boys eating, you know, cracking an egg and eating it right there and then as they climb a cliff. Wow. Um, there are also lots of um, talk or the um, the monks in really quite early Ireland um, mm. used seaweed without any of the stigma of poverty and so forth. There is a mention in one of the, the old books of a, a day in the life of a monk and discussing how they would have a time for prayer, a time for feeding the poor, a time for gardening or attending to the the kale yard or whatever and a time for gathering seaweed it was just one of the things you did as mm. a monk in ireland in the this was referring to um about the 14th 15th century but they were re- referring back to the 9th to 12th centuries there and in brehan law the value of a rock covered in seaweed which would have been part of a small holding on a coastal property Mm. was equivalent to that of, I think it was three milch cows, which is quite a big deal, what? you know. It what wasn't, rock? yes. And now I don't really know the wow. size of the rock, yeah, but this yeah. was a Breton law, sort of what everything is worth, evaluation. Yes, yeah. And that would have been for gathering things like what I'm going to call nori, because we all know the nori sheets we get in yes. Asian food markets or in the supermarket these days. Um which is delicious, and which in Wales would have been laver for laver bread. And, uh, yeah, was used in Ireland too. Um, I think there is protein in seaweed. There is a little bit of carbohydrate. But their main um, importance in most diets is as a source of trace elements, which are becoming scarcer in the modern diet. We've been breeding plants for blandness and sweetness and richness in carbohydrates for decades and we're a little bit careless with the quality of our soils so some of the trace elements are becoming harder to find in conventionally produced foods. Um, The wilder relatives of these foods tend to be much higher in um, trace minerals and vitamins and uh, also in the interesting little phytochemicals that give us bitter compounds and highly flavoured compounds and we've been breeding that out systematically without even thinking about it mm. since we started domesticating crops. Um, and we've become increasingly good at that over the last few decades. We have to watch that. Mm. Um, this leads to sort of imbalances in our, in our systems which are hard to address. And the easiest way is to avoid them in the first place. And just keep an eye on what you're eating and why you're eating it. And whether your hunger is related to um, a shortage of calories, which are easy to find, or a shortage of trace elements and nutrients. Mm, that's really interesting. Wow. I'm still like in shock over the Breton Law thing. I'm like, no way. Yes. Um, and for anybody maybe who's listening who might not be from here or anything, would you be able to just explain a little bit what is what was the Breton Law? It's the law system that predates... Um, I suppose the con- the Norman conquest in Ireland. Um, <coughs> sorry, the uh, the lawgivers were one of the most important groups in Irish society. Every um, aristocratic family, every chief, every king would have had somebody to tell him what to do and what the law is. Mm. 
Mm. And they were, some of the oldest laws relating to litigation, which is curious, that if you hurt or killed somebody, you owed a debt to the family of the survivors. And that was calculated in a very straightforward way on the value of the person who was injured or killed. Um, So men were worth more than women. Free men were worth more than slaves or serfs or the low caste. It wasn't necessarily nice, but it was very straightforward and it gave people a value. And it gave their um, goods and chattels a value too. Mm. So you knew where you were with Brehan Law in a way that a lot of systems at the time would have been very much the king owns everything. Mm. The um, <laughs> the more noble you are, the more you can get away with. Yeah. Um, that was true to a far lesser extent in the Celtic countries that had this system of, you know, law that was learned by specialists and written down in books and could mm. be referred to. Wow. And that would have been part of Irish law until probably around the 15th century. In some areas, little bits of it still survive, mm. but they're very much fragments. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah, very good uh, for any of you listening from abroad. And um, I was thinking as well when you spoke about the eggs, like I've eaten sea spinach, like that's another one people can... Well, yes, the green get. plants above the shoreline, above the, the high tide mark yeah. are resistant to salt and to wind damage and to the sort of disturbance of storms. But they're not seaweeds. They are vascular green plants. Yeah. And some of those are also very high in vitamins and minerals and so forth. They would be well nourished by decaying seaweed in the gravel and shingle at the top of the tide. Um, yes, the oranges and the sea spinaches and um, yes, samphires as well are very mm. interesting. Samphire being named for St. Peter, the patron saints of fishermen. Mm. And I can imagine, you know, that one of the things that really upsets me in some ways is the uh, seafarers of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries would send, you know, a boat with almost two or three times as many people as they actually needed because they knew half of them were going to die, mainly of things like scurvy, deficiency diseases, which they could have addressed by, you know, even eating some of the seaweed that was fouling the bottoms of the boats they were in. Mm -hmm. Uh, But particularly, the fishermen knew that in early spring they had to have some samphire to clear the blood, they would say, but that actually was to address the deficiency diseases they would have gotten by living on salt fish for most of the winter. And I can imagine a seafarer, you know, going to sea and saying, well, my granny always told me I had to eat sea spinach, but I don't have to eat it now. Yes. And then coming down with scurvy six months later. Mm. Wow. So much suffering, so much avoidable suffering. Yes. yes. And you also, folks, just a moment ago, I was able to see a beautiful image of Frances next to a basking shark um, she also does some work um, out at sea with those cetaceans so could you tell us a little bit about that and I'm not sure if it's quite work I certainly don't get paid for it yeah. <laughs> but I am very interested in basking sharks which are of course a shark and um, yeah. elasmobranch um, and with whales and dolphins which are we're so lucky we have 20-something species of whales and dolphins in Irish waters. We have, you know, a a good dozen species of sharks that you can see on a regular basis if you keep your eyes open 
and put your head under the water from time to time. <laughs> Basking sharks will move into um, Irish waters. Uh, I suppose they're there most of the time, though it's difficult to say. They're certainly visible in spring and early summer. And if we get a settled period of nice sunny weather, you'll see them come to the surface to bask. You'll see their tips of their noses, their dorsal fin and the tip of the tail. So sometimes you look out and you think you're seeing three sharks, but you're seeing one. Mm -hmm. And they're huge. They're the second biggest fish in the ocean, the biggest being the whale sharks. And very gentle, though I can't recommend you get too close to them. They're big and they move very fast sometimes. Mm. Um, Same is true for the whales and dolphins. We're extraordinarily lucky to be able to get close to them in Irish waters. There are some very good tours, particularly off the south and west coasts, which will bring you in close to them without getting too much in the way of the creatures themselves. Um, You can see them from clifftops with a good set of binoculars or a telescope. Irish Whale and Dolphin Group are worth getting in touch with and look at their website for details on where things are now visible and what's around. And there's a basking shark group, which I think was started by many of the same people, which is studying where the sharks are, how they're moving, what they're eating, how they're breeding, all this sort of stuff. They're such huge creatures and yet so hard to get into the details, get any knowledge of the details of their lives because while a dolphin or a a whale has to come to the surface every few minutes to breathe, a shark doesn't have to. We're lucky to see them on a basking type day. The rest of the time they could be a hand's breadth under the surface and you will not know they are there. Mm, The secret life of... Yes, yeah. of sharks. Some of the cetaceans can be pretty elusive too, but sharks are just mm. mysteries still. And so is that where their name is from because they bask at the surface? Yes, that's correct. For the sun? Don't know. No, I think they're following plankton who are following the sun. Okay. okay. And in settled conditions, you can see them so much more easily. Mm. I mean, there could be one out there now. It's blowing about, what, four, four or five. Yeah. It's not stormy, but you won't see a shark in this. Yeah. Wow. Oh, so interesting. And Frances also, I'm actually looking at her book and um, it's so interesting all about seaweeds. And part of it here says about how seaweeds were the ancestors of all land plants. Um, would you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that's the truth of it. Um, that some of the first um, cells to sort of line themselves up into uh, multicellular creatures would have been red algae. We have fossils of red algae from I think the current record is 1.8 billion years ago and they were among the most the first multicellular anything wow. and animals and plants were not so distinct at that stage that the cells that had a little bit of um, of pigment in them for fixing uh, sunlight into carbohydrates uh, so that energy could be produced and stored um, were, were or became red algae and um, others that formed into little tubes to filter um, nutrients out of the water became sponges and um, they are both very ancient and at the bottom of this tree of life if you like there's not a huge distinction between plant and animal um, And the red algae go on to become more specialised. But some of the simple little columns of little red cells are still present in parts of the shallow Pacific, particularly. 
and um, are almost the same as the ones from 1.8 billion years ago. I think that's comforting. You can Once you find a way of life, carry on doing the same thing in a good way for billions of years, not just millions. Mm. Um, so from among the red algae um, were derived the green algae. <coughs> and uh, at a later stage, uh, the brown um, fucoid and kelp type algae were um, developed from something very close to the line of the first animals. So in fact, we're more closely related to brown seaweeds, kelps and racks, than we are to green plants. Wow. Yeah, it's a funny one, but that seems to be the case. Mm. So those uh, green algae that sort of split off from the red algae included um, some that were in freshwater. The very early oceans were fresher than the oceans that we have today because there hadn't been so much erosion of rock and so much accumulation of salt. And in sort of tidal or pool areas at the edge of the old continents, you would have had green algae being trapped in little pools. And the ones that survived being dried out by ancient sunshine um, would have been more tolerant to um, desiccation. And some of those seem to have formed alliances with fungi, which would have come from the more animal side of things. And they um, became commensal to each other. That is, the algae would have looked after the root of what became a, a plant that, first of all, could survive brief periods of drying out and then became actually terrestrial. And their, um, their leaves and fronds wouldn't have been immersed in the water anymore, so they needed to get nutrients from somewhere. Mm. And they would have formed very early roots or precursors of roots, which would have had fungal helpers along the uh, strand of the root and they helped to transport vital nutrients into the what became a plant. So the the, the green um, sort of algaes were called cara, C-H-A-R-A, the stoneworts. They still exist. Mm. And we can see how similar they are both to algae and to terrestrial plants. So from that line, all grasses, all bushes, all trees, all flowers were gradually descended in different places does that make sense yeah okay. so we're basically all from the ocean <laughs> yes <laughs> we're and all from a something very much like an algae yeah and like as well i'm not sure if you've seen um there was a documentary about fish people you know people going back to the ocean and living more at sea than on land and how they developed back those features of mm. i suppose see people you know like that their breath became longer their eyes you know the lids like that we have actually features in us that are more developed for sea would you this, know much about that this useful little layer of subcutaneous fat that we have yeah. and the brown fat that's close to our spines that allows us to survive um colder water than um a lot of our ape relatives uh yeah we're certainly much better at dealing with foraging on the seashore than chimpanzees or gorillas or any other of our of our cousins if you like um i think that humanity spent a lot of time on the seashore um i don't know about 
I think that humanity has always been pretty adaptable and will move into any vacant space and learn some way of exploiting it. Mm -hmm. And yes, I think we probably did depend on the shallow shore, the shallow um, edges of ponds and lakes and rivers for our um, for our early life, if you like. We need so much iodine and so much iron, which is so easily available from shellfish and, and seaweed and so difficult to get in somewhere like even a rainforest or a desert or a, um, a temperate plain, that I think we probably have a lot of our ancestors close to the seashore. But the area close to a seashore fossilizes poorly because of storms. So it's only quite recently that we're starting to find enough detail to trace any of that bit of our history, mm. our prehistory. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. And if you were to recommend people iodine and iron, what kind of food or where could people get it? Well, obviously, shellfish, which are filter feeders and are slightly outside what we're talking today. Yeah. Um, now, you have to be a little bit careful with both of those nutrients because you can get too much some people have iron metabolism disorders um, and need to be careful not to eat too much iron. So if you're in a family um, uh, that has such his a history, be a little careful. Don't eat too much brown seaweed. The same goes for uh, iodine. You can Now, iodine deficiency is one of the most common and one of the most debilitating deficiency diseases in the 21st century, particularly in inland areas. And I'm not just talking about sub-Saharan Africa, though it's absolutely rife there and causes huge problems, especially to children, but also in inland parts of Europe and of the United States, particularly among very poor populations of predominantly people of color. Um, access to more nutritious foods is something we're lucky enough to have, and not everybody does. Mm -hmm. um, so we have gotten used to eating diets that are a bit deficient in iodine. Mm. And if you suddenly start flooding a body that has gotten used to this deficiency with a whole lot of iodine in middle age, and I'm speaking here as a middle aged lady, mm. you can cause some problems with the thyroid. So it's okay. worth being a little bit cautious with eating too much of the brown seaweeds, which would be the kelps and the... Um, um, the racks uh, from not eating any at all keep it down to about 5-10 grams a week and you'll mm -hmm. be fine um, and maybe get a thyroid function test if you're changing anything radical about your diet or, or whatever you're doing okay well yeah that's really it's worth doing anyway a thyroid function test should be part of your midlife MOT yeah. and can you get iodine as well from the sea air from the ocean water you absolutely can yeah. you can both inhale and it will transport across the mucosa of your nose and and uh, lungs so you can inhale iodine and absorb it that way yeah. especially if you're close to a pile of rotting seaweed on a nice irish beach mm. you can also if you have managed to get too much iodine it normally doesn't do you much damage it's like having an extra cup of uh, black coffee espresso You'll be a little bit hyper for a little <laughs> while. You might talk too fast. I'm speaking here from, perf <laughs> from yeah, personal experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the cure for it is 
stop eating seaweed for a couple of days and you yeah. will exhale it and it will all just dissipate away and it'll be fine. Okay, so excess can make you a bit hyperactive. It can. And in theory, though it very rarely happens, it yeah. can cause damage to the thyroid. So okay. I advise against it. Just build up slowly and don't go too high. Yeah. And say for any of us wild swimmers, like there are days you go in and there's just like you can't even swim because it's so clumped and you're just covered in it and you yes. do get a bit excited. Would, would that be partly? Um, no. Or that's dead. It's dead. No, you are just having fun, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> you and the seal next to you. Yes. Like, are you still getting nutrition you're, even on your skin? From it that? won't go across skin. Not, okay. The skin is quite a good barrier against okay. things like that. I mean, there are some small chemicals that will go across skin. Yeah. And some of them are, are dangerous, but most iodine is not one of those or iodine okay. um, compounds, which is what you'll be in contact with. It doesn't really go across skin, mm. at least not at that concentration, not in the sort of iodine tea that you get it yeah. in, in seaweed ocean. But you are inhaling the air immediately above that iodine tea yeah. and you'll get some of it that way. Okay. Um, however, it doesn't really have an immediate effect. It's more a build up if you have too much for day after day after day during your summer holiday having not had any during the rest of the year Mm. um and for healthy people especially for young people it's not a big deal just later in life when some of your functions are slowing down a bit you can slightly change the balance yeah and so what benefit do those seaweed baths have that people well there are all these interesting hydrocolloids and gels and things in the thallus of the seaweeds Okay. And some of them are in, in constant use in hospitals as dressings or components okay. of dressings for burns and for severe skin damage of various sorts. Um, they are a very good protective layer for people who, again, usually through burn or some other problem, yeah. have lost the protection of their skin. Um, and the business of putting it in your bath or in a seaweed spa will provide a little layer for psoriasis or yeah. any again of the kind of eczema type conditions which people are troubled by and for just feeling a bit you know your skin isn't great today um yeah. if you break the little um pods. fruiting body yeah, yeah almost pods on the racks of the yeah. mid-shore to lower shore Ascophyllum, um, ascoberries they're called in okay. early spring okay. various different kinds of racks as the day goes on and the fronds of the kelps um, at any time of the year, really. Nice, fresh ones. You'll get a gel, which you can just physically rub onto your skin, like yeah. you would aloe vera or mm. something. And they are very soothing and very healing, I think, really. Um, yeah. uh, watch it. If you're putting them in the bath, they will make the bath as slippery as if you put in baby oil. So be a little careful. <laughs> yeah. So do they need to be heated to get the proponents or is it just not just really in the ocean and you'll get slightly different versions if yeah. you heat or don't heat yeah. yeah okay wow amazing we're all going to be having baths yeah. um and popping and little berries <laughs> yeah and i just wanted to ask as well about the oxygen um you know because a lot of us look at the forests and we see our o2 coming from there yes but in fact the ocean is very important role 
um, on this planet. So It absolutely is, and it covers more than 70% of the Earth's surface. It's a hugely important part of the environment. Now, the bits I'm talking about, the seaweeds, are really only found in that little band where land and ocean meet. But that's one of the most active zones on this planet. Um, seaweeds and oxygen, yes. Now, it's complicated. All mm. atmospheric gas stuff is complicated yeah. and outside my expertise. Yeah. Uh, they do say more than 50% of the oxygen on the planet has a marine origin. Mm. Uh, whether that is seaweeds, yes, they produce a lot of oxygen, but they're only present in this band and in a few areas where seaweeds like Sargasso Sea live as free living rafts almost. Um, yes, okay, those produce lots of oxygen. How much they produce relative to how much is absorbed by them as they decay is another question and it's a very complicated one yeah. and I don't think anyone has a definitive answer to that mm. um, because they also absorb oxygen when they're not photosynthesizing and as I say, when they decay, the same is true of the phytoplankton, the plant-type plankton that lives in the top layers of all the oceans of the world. Um, more where it's well-nourished and less where it's really very clean and doesn't have much, much nourishment. And again, the sums on how much they absorb, how much they emit, how much is just part of them as they exist in the water are quite complicated and I don't think anyone has either enough data or enough computer power to give a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. We'll say a bit over half has a marine origin yeah. and beyond that they're still calculating. Yeah. And it's changing. As the ocean warms, mm-hmm. as we put stuff into it and take stuff out of it, we are messing on a planetary scale with ocean chemistry, biology, physics, the works. We're changing things that we don't understand and that worries me. Yeah, we don't know the later effect. Hmm. And do you think, do you think there's water on other planets? Oh yes, no, no, no question about that. Comets are water mainly, mm. muddy water. But yeah, most comets are water, and water may have come to the Earth as part of a you know asteroid bombardment. Yeah. Um, Oceanic water existing as a nice big sloppy tidal pool as it does on Earth mm. is a different matter. But there are a lot of planets in a lot of, you know, star systems. Mm. Uh, again, that's beyond my pay grade. I haven't a clue, but I'm pretty sure there is. <laughs> Whether there is life in it is a totally different yeah. question. It's a mystery. Yeah. If anybody knows, could you get in contact with me? (laughs) More about the Fermi paradox, please. (laughs) Curiosity. Indeed. Um, Wow, that's amazing. Amazing, amazing information. So would you maybe just like to share what your favourite seaweed is or maybe what's your favourite thing to do with it? Oh dear. And what's your favourite child? Well, that's easy. I only have one daughter, so <laughs> I can answer that one. It varies from season to season. In the okay. winter, it would be the Osmondias, the pepper dulces. They okay. taste delicious. They have this beautiful sort of ferny structure. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you find them on the lower shore, kind of under the the um, roots of the kelps and the very low shore, um, bigger seaweeds. Um they're pretty and sort of purpley, glossy brown and, as I say, delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time of the year, probably the sea spaghettis and some of the big kelps that you can snorkel among and whose roots and 
holdfasts, they're not really roots, they're just holdfasts, um, provide such wonderful environments for the pretty red seaweeds. And of course, yes, I love the pretty red seaweeds. The greens, the ancestors of all our terrestrial plants, they're gorgeous too, but I don't know enough about them. And a lot of what you have to learn about them to identify them accurately can only be seen using either a very good microscope or molecular techniques that I can't bring home with me. I love them all. <laughs> <laughs> she loves them all. And what would be your favourite thing to do with them? Would it be like a recipe, eat them, or would it be something else? Um, I like nibbling them on the seashore. I like making seaweed scones out of dillisk. I like uh, drying some of them in the oven and crumbling them into all sorts of things. I like making especially with the filmy reds, rather beautiful mounted seaweeds, um, specimens on paper uh, for decoration or for botanical reference. I like looking at the ones that people have done centuries ago, um, how little they've changed, when they have changed, how they have changed. Um, yeah, I find them really very interesting in all stages. Wow. And do you rinse them or can you just nibble them away at the shore? a lot depends on your shore uh, okay. but yeah you can just nibble them if you are happy to take a mouthful of that seawater when you're swimming yeah. then it shouldn't be much worse yeah exactly and yeah you know yourself if you're not feeling great anyway probably stay away from it if you're changing or putting anything as new and different into your diet as seaweed yeah. then do it gradually and see how you react because some people's bodies aren't really able to cope with very much of peculiar things like seaweeds Mm. or mushrooms or yeah. beans it varies from person to person yeah build up gradually and most people will be fine yeah rewilding our bodies a thing and um just in the supermarket you know you see the sheets of nori which are really popular mm. do they have like good nutrition or oh, would they you do. tell people to just go to the shore um I think it's one way of eating seaweed. Yeah. Uh, it's only one way of many. Um, yes. It's not a particularly Irish way. They are all derived from um, Asian seaweeds, which yeah. are farmed commercially. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. Yeah. Nori sheets are something I use myself. And yeah. if you're stuck for time or uh, if you're not living near a beach, it's as good as any. Um, the way they prepare nori involves drying and smoking and layering them one on top of another and it's a lot of faff and I don't do it yeah um so I think for that particular application just buy them yeah but uh watch the date they do go off mm-hmm. um and they go soft quickly they do yeah yeah, yeah. treat them as you would you know it's a it's a short it's like an open packet of cereal it'll absorb water and go a little bit meh really quite yeah. quickly um and they don't take light very well Mm. but they're great yeah super well folks um i think we will finish up there um amazing information i could talk all day about this i'd love to hear it all about seaweeds um but francis i'd just like to ask you if you would like to share any final points about your work or upcoming things that people might like to know about or well i'm lucky enough to have been invited to help out with the Ellen Hutchins uh, festival since quite early in its development and uh, that happens in Bantry Bay in August Uh, it'll be mid-August I think around the something teenth of this year Um, Madeleine Hutchins and Claire Herdman the ranger and the 
great-great-something-niece of Ellen Hutchins, Ireland's first female botanist, have been organising that for some years now, since her 200th anniversary of her death. Um, it's a fascinating collection of art and music and scientific study of seaweeds and other, what were known as the cryptophytes. Yes, the, um, the animals with, or sorry, the plants with hidden reproduction. So that would be mosses, liverworts, um, seaweeds, lichens, fungi. Um, Ellen Hutchins also worked on terrestrial plants, but is known for her work on seaweeds and liverworts and so forth. Mm. Um, so that is something that I'll be doing a little workshop on preserving specimens in, mm. in uh, I think the 13th of August. Super. on Quiddy Island and there will be lots of other festival events that people might be interested in. Wow, that sounds exciting. Um, and if you'd like to um, know more about seaweed foraging, could you guide people somewhere? I've been doing that through Inch Hideaway for a while. Yes, we can organise to um, go out with little groups of people. Um, it's probably best to get in touch with Inch Hideaway for that or certainly okay. if you're booking a holiday through Inch Hideaway yeah. that's the way to go super yeah. yeah super that sounds amazing I think all of the listeners here would love to know more about seaweed and foraging and rewilding so thank you Francis for today um, and thank you to the patrons as well who are supporting every week if you like this episode please give it a share or give some feedback if you have and um, if you can support, go on to patreon.com slash catchkate. And I'll talk to you all very soon. Ciao.